Welcome to Febrel, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. Just as a reminder, this is part two of a pair of episodes on CAR T-cell therapy and infections. Please check out episode 73 for the first part uh, if you didn't catch that when it came out a couple weeks ago. Our co-host today is Dr. Rita Dibb, who's a chief ID fellow at UT Health Science Center and MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Hi. Our guest discussant is Dr. Joseph Sassine, who is an assistant professor of medicine and a transplant ID physician at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center. Hi, everyone. And without further delay, here's part two. So this case is of a 47-year-old man. Uh, he has diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That's both therapies with ARTSHOP, this time with intrathecal chemotherapy included and RDHAP subsequently, uh, but then found to have recurrent disease. He did undergo T-cell infusion with Lysocell, which is CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy, four months ago. At that time, ID saw him for CRS. Uh, he had received three doses of tocilizumab. Uh, they also saw him for non-neutropenic fever in the setting of colitis um, and treated him at the time. He now presents to, with respiratory symptoms after having been exposed to his toddler at home. He also reported having two prior upper respiratory tract infections in the past two months, but this time feels worse with the recalcitrant cough and dyspnea on exertion. CT of the chest revealed bilateral interstitial opacities and his respiratory PCR is positive for RSV. Why is this patient having recurrent URIs? Is a question for you, Dr. Sassine. And what are his risk factors for progressing to a lower respiratory tract infection from here? Great. So I think this is a good time to discuss a little bit the late complications of CAR-T uh, review infections that occur beyond day 30, and then we can specifically talk about respiratory viral infections. Late complications of CAR-T include B-cell aplasia and subsequent hypogammaglobulinemia, prolonged cytopenias, some late neurologic events and immune-related effects, and uh, subsequent malignancies such as myodysplastic etc. From an infectious disease perspective, we are most interested in B-cell aplasia with hypogammaglobulinemia and prolonged cytopenias. Cytopenias initially occur due to lymphodepleting chemotherapy and prior therapies for the underlying malignancy. Uh, they can be observed beyond 30 days post-infusion with most products. In one post-hoc analysis of 31 patients with refractory large B-cell lymphoma treated with AxiCell, which is a CD19 product at MD Anderson, 48% had grade 3 to 4 cytopenia by day 30. 29% had neutropenia. On uh, univariate analysis, performance status, more than three prior therapies, and low lymphocyte count at baseline were the most important risk factors. Then, among patients with ongoing remission, 27% had grade 3 to 4 cytopenias at one year, and 11% had persistent cytopenias at two years post-CAR-T. Uh, all of the patients recovered their CD8 T-cells, CD56 NK cells at one year. Only two-thirds of the patient recovered their CD4 T-cells at one year, and about 70% recovered them at two years. So it's not uncommon to see prolonged cytopenias after CAR-T. 
going specifically into B-cell aplasia, uh, this is what we call an on-target off-tumor effect of CD19 CAR T. So CD19 is expressed on the B-cell lineage from pre-B cells through the memory B cells. Uh, the CD19 CAR T cells do not discriminate between malignant B cells and the healthy B cells. Uh, so this will lead to B cell aplasia. Uh, this will affect more than 85% of the patients in the first month and will persist in about 40 to 60% of the patients at the one year mark. Uh, and this constitutes the major risk factors for a hypogamma globulinemia after CAR T. Prior treatments before CAR T the type or nature of hematological malignancy and other post-CAR-T acute toxicities requiring additional immunosuppression can also contribute to worsening hypogamma globulinemia. So some data or numbers to back this up. Uh, there was a study of uh, 85 adults with large B-cell lymphoma who got AxiCell, a CD19 product. 28% of them had hypogamma, hypogamma globulinemia prior to lymphodepletion, so to begin with. IgG levels reached their nadir at six months. And then at one year, about half of the patients did not need immunoglobulin replacement therapy. Another study of 41 patients with large B-cell lymphoma who also got AxiCell, 10% had hypogamma prior to lymphodepletion. Over the first nine months, 62% had hypogamma and 37% received immunoglobulin replacement therapy. It seems that lower rates have been reported with other CD19 products. The phase one and two trial for uh, Lisacel had 14%, and that was for large B cell lymphoma. The Brex cell phase two trial for mental cell lymphoma had 1% of hypogamma globulinemia. Keep in mind, these are clinical trials. The inclusion criteria are stricter than real-world data. As you notice, this is mostly about IgG. There's very scarce data when it comes to IgA and IgM. Now, uh, to talk about late infections after CAR-T, as we briefly mentioned in the previous episode, uh, the majority of late infections after CD19 CAR-T tend to be viral. Uh, in the previous episode, we discussed uh, that first study of infections after CD19 CAR-T out of Fred Hodge in 2018. Uh, they ended up uh, doing longer follow-up for uh, 86 patients from that cohort um, who stayed alive for at least one year. 16% uh, of these patients had prolonged neutropenia, lasting 15 to 22 months. Uh, Two-thirds had hypogamma globulinemia beyond day 90. 64% uh, of these patients had hypogamma globulinemia prior to CAR-T to begin with. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's important as we, uh, we had discussed. Uh, and remember this study included patients with ALL and CLL and those tend to have more hypogamma globulinemia to begin with um, compared to patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the infections were upper respiratory infections followed by lower respiratory infections. Almost all the URIs were managed as an outpatient. The lower respiratory infections were managed equally between outpatient and inpatient. Uh, of the other infections that occurred, half of them were skin infections. Uh, overall, 20% of the patients required inpatient admission and only 5% required ICU admission. So 
much less severe overall compared to the early phase. Uh, again, another cohort that we covered in the previous episode, this uh, time CD19 CAR T cell recipients at Sloan Kettering. Beyond day 30, about half of the patients developed a bacterial infection and about 44% developed a viral infection. Of these, 75% uh, were respiratory viral infections. They had one patient with CMV viralemia, two patients had VZV breakthrough on acyclovir. One patient had pneumocystis four months after stopping pentamidine and nine months after CAR-T. In that cohort, both the IgG level and the CD4 count reached the nadir at about nine months and then started picking up. Uh, the major predictor for viral infection was a low IgG level prior to lymphodepletion. And then one more cohort that we also previously discussed is the one out of Moffitt, also CD19 CAR-T. And after day 30, 44% uh, of the patients had an infection. About 60% of these were respiratory viruses. 22% of the patients had a severe infection. There were five pneumonias, one MRSA bacteremia, and one neutropenic fever. Uh, there were no significant differences in CD4, CD8, or IgG levels. Uh, at day 30 between patients who developed infections after day 30 and those who did not. Now, to focus on respiratory viral infections, uh, I have to mention a great review article that was published actually by Rita very recently in OFID. So make sure to check it out. Uh, essentially, most of the data on respiratory viral infections after CAR-T was generated from post-hoc evaluation of the major CAR-T trials and those cohorts that we discussed. Uh, in the first 30 days after CAR-T, uh, the rates of respiratory viral infections uh, range between 8 and 20%. And those rates were significantly higher later on, reaching 58% between day 30 and day 90, and about 50, 53% within one year. Uh, this is likely due to a combination of the long-term B-cell aplasia and hypogamma globulinemia, which we discussed. Uh, and also remember that Patients will try to re-engage with their communities once they um, uh, finish the more intensive part of the treatment and that day 30 mark. Uh, it seems that the most common respiratory viruses in the community are also the most common respiratory viruses affecting uh, recipients of cellular therapies. Rhinovirus being the leading cause, uh, about a third of the infections. Influenza, about a fifth of the infections. And then para-influenza, about 15%. Uh, there certainly is a high risk for severe disease and higher mortality due to uh, respiratory viral infections in these patients. Uh, influenza pneumonia has definitely been described, as well as severe forms of COVID-19 pneumonia. Uh, we have also witnessed um, kind of relapsing, recurring forms of COVID-19 pneumonia in these patients, and those are incredibly challenging to manage requiring repeated, repeated courses of uh, antivirals, repeated courses of steroids. In terms of risk stratification, we do not have a specific or tangible tool to use yet. Uh, there has been an immunodeficiency scoring index, which was developed by Dr. Shemali at MD Anderson. Uh, and this was initially developed to assess the risk for progression from URI to LRI. Uh, and the risk for mortality, and this was mostly in allogeneic HCT recipients. Uh, initially, was developed for patients with RSV infection, and then this score has been validated for other respiratory viral infections in this patient population. Uh, 
The ISI assigns a weighted score for different risk factors, including neutropenia, lymphopenia, age, corticosteroids, recent allogeneic HCT. Those factors can probably be used to come up with a similar score for uh, PARTISA recipients. There are two additional factors in the ISI score, myoablative conditioning regimen and GVHD, and those probably would not be applicable for PARTISA recipients. So indeed, our patient did undergo a flow cytometry. This one revealed a CD19 count of zero. His immunoglobulin levels were also all below the standard level, and his IgG was at 139. How do we interpret these findings at this time, and how does this affect his treatment plan? Yeah, so as expected, uh, these findings are consistent with profound uh, B-cell aplasia given the very thin count of zero, uh, accompanied with severe hypogammaglobulinemia with the IgG level of 139. Uh, it is also important for us to put the IgG level in the context of two previous URIs, uh, and this current episode of RSV with likely pneumonia based on the findings on CT chest. So that would be his third infection. In terms of immediate management, with him having a probable RSV lower respiratory infection, he should be considered for oral ribavirin therapy. For the sake of time, I will not go into the details of data behind using oral ribavirin to treat these patients. The one-liner is that aerosolized ribavirin has been used in the past. However, this is very cumbersome to administer, comes with high risks to the patient and the staff. Uh, oral ribavirin has data recently suggesting similar efficacy with better tolerability, better safety. Uh, one could also consider intravenous immunoglobulin given the presence of lower respiratory tract involvement. And here we're talking about treatment of this episode. We'll talk about replacement therapy in a bit. Uh, there have been no randomized controlled trials comparing ribavirin with IVIG to ribavirin alone. Retrospective analyses have shown variable results for the combination, and this is probably because humanized IVIG lacks sufficient specific antibodies to RSV, so you really get mixed response based on what product you get. Uh, there's another question that I want to address, because that comes up very often on consults, is the use of uh, pavlizumab, which is the uh, RSV-specific monoclonal antibody. Uh, this is really only approved for primary prophylaxis in high-risk uh, neonates and children. Uh, experience uh, using it for treatment is very limited, uh, and essentially no recommendation, or no recommendation can be made based on the available data. Uh, I know the ASTCT-ID group has developed guidelines for management of RSV. They presented those in tandem in February, uh, and these should hopefully be out soon. Now, the next part of your question has to do with managing his hypogammaglobulinemia on longer term. Um, and here there are three factors to take into consideration when making the decision for IgG replacement. One is the extent of hypogammaglobinemia, as in the actual serum IgG level, and 400 milligrams per deciliter is the most commonly used cutoff. Second is the occurrence and frequency of infections, particularly serious infections, recurring infections, and especially bacterial infections with encapsulated organisms. Three is how far out from CAR T the patient is. Um, the further out, we would be more liberal in administering immunoglobulin replacement therapy in patients who are less than three months out 
as compared to patients who received CAR-T more than three months ago. <clears throat> so on the subject of hypogammaglobulinemia, I highly recommend an expert review from the group at Fred Hodge. And uh, they provide a reasonable framework for immunoglobulin replacement therapy. In the first three months after CD19 CAR-T, and with IgG level less than 400, plus or minus recurrent serious bacterial infection, that would be a good indication. Once you go beyond three months, they suggest that you need a combination of both hypogammaglobulinemia and the recurrent or serious bacterial infections with specific emphasis on sinopulmonary bacterial infections and infections with encapsulated bacteria. So in six months, the patient presents to the clinic for follow-up and vaccinations come up in our discussions with him. Which vaccinations should he receive at this point or uh, in the future? Great. So vaccinations after CAR-T are an essential cornerstone to prevent infections in this patient population. It is still unclear who, when, and how to vaccinate these patients. There are a lot of ongoing studies. Understanding response to vaccines after CAR-T is still also the subject of ongoing studies, especially that different vaccines have different levels of immunogenicity. I think prior to CAR-T, it's important to obtain a comprehensive vaccination history, including pneumococcal and influenza vaccination. Uh, evaluating their status for hepatitis B is also important. And I know we did not touch a lot on viral hepatitis here, uh, but real quick, uh, patients with a hepatitis B core antibody positive or a surface antigen positive should be receiving antiviral prophylaxis. So prior to CAR-T, the two vaccines that should get administered are the annual influenza vaccine during influenza season. Uh, this should be at least two weeks prior to lymphodepletion. And then a complete series of uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines if there is time. Otherwise, the full series can be administered at least three to six months post-CAR-T. Additional vaccines are usually not recommended prior to CAR-T, given that most of these patients have relapsed refractory malignancies, have received extensive anti-tumor therapies, and we would expect a lower immunological response. Now, after CAR-T, you have just like uh, after allogenic or autologous hematopoietic cell transplant, you have to make a distinction between killed inactivated vaccines and then the live or non-live adjuvant vaccines. Uh, killed inactivated vaccines can be administered if the patient is in remission, six months or more post-CAR-T, two months or more after the last dose of IVIG, uh, and if they're not receiving chemotherapy or other immunosuppressive therapies that would affect their T or D cell function. Those vaccines will include the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, haemophilus influenza type B, hepatitis A and B, diphtheria tetanus acellular pertussis vaccine, and here we prefer the DTAP over the Tdap. Titers are usually checked after the first dose, and for those patients who have seroprotective titers, no history of HCT or who had already completed their post-HCT vaccines, you don't need any additional vaccine doses. For those patients uh, who do not have seroprotective titers after one dose or who had prior HCT and did not complete their vaccines, you do need additional doses of the vaccines to complete what is essentially a primary series. Now, for pneumococcal vaccination, I do want to mention that the traditional approach, which has been extrapolated from vaccination after HCT, has been 
three doses of PCV13 followed by the polysaccharide vaccine, PPSV23. Now, since then, we have the PCV15 and PCV20. And I think different centers are trying to develop strategies around how to use PCV15 and PCV20 and come up with an updated pneumococcal immunization schedule. Additional killed or inactivated vaccines, such as meningococcal vaccine, inactivated polio, uh, HPV, human papillomavirus, are typically administered past 18 months uh, in those patients who will have responded to the initial vaccine series. Now, live and non-live adjuvant vaccines can be administered when the patient is in remission, more than one year post-CAR T, more than two years post a hematopoietic cell transplant if they had received one, and as long as they had met the other post-transplant criteria, more than one year after immunosuppressive therapies, more than eight months after the last IVIG, and a CD4 count of more than 200 is usually required. Uh, these would include uh, measles, mumps, rubella, so MMR, and then the recombinant zoster vaccine, which reminder is now approved for all adult immunocompromised patients, regardless of their age. There used to be an age 50 years cutoff in the past. That cutoff is gone. Thank you. So now we're gonna go to another another patient. Uh, this case is that of a 56-year-old man. He has relapsed refractory multiple myeloma, uh, and he is status posed four prior lines of therapy. These included an immun immunomodulatory agent, lenalidomide, a proteasome inhibitor, bortezomib, and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, uh, such as daratumumab. He underwent a BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy, and BCMA stands for B-cell maturation antigen. Uh, Lymphodepleting therapy at the time was cyclophosphamide and fludarabine as well. He developed CRS post-CAR T, and that was uh, at a grade of 3, and ICANS. He was treated with tocilizumab times 3 and dexamethasone, and was discharged after a long hospitalization on steroids and levetiracetam for seizure prophylaxis. He is receiving IV pentamidine for PCP prophylaxis. A uh, question here would be, how is BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy different from CD19 CAR T-cell therapy that you told us about? Uh, and that is in terms of risk factors for infection or infectious complications in general. Great. So BCMA CAR Ts are relatively recent in use uh, compared to CD19 CAR T. So our understanding of the immunological dysfunctions and subsequent infections that occur after BCMA CAR-T is currently evolving. Uh, BCMA CAR-T, as you mentioned, is used in patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. And due to the nature of this disease and the therapies used to treat it, including lots of steroids, sometimes multiple autologous transplants, uh, the depletion of long-lived plasma cells already occurs before BCMA CAR-T. Uh, it also continues after CAR-T because the BCMA antigen is actually present on long-lived plasma cells. Uh, as we discussed earlier with CD19 CAR-T, uh, most of uh, the infectious risk framework is similar. Uh, there are some differences, though, and we're going to try to highlight those. 
With BCMACRT, we do see hypogammaglobulinemia as a result of B-cell depletion and the setting of the on-target of tumor effect of the CAR-T. Uh, this hypogammaglobulinemia is even more important after BCMACRT on two levels. One, uh, a larger proportion of patients get to CAR-T with pre-existing hypogammaglobulinemia. So a study of 55 adults who had received BCMA CAR-T for multiple myeloma uh, had 42% of the patients with an IgG level less than 300 prior to lymphodepletion to begin with. This gets accentuated after CAR-T reaches 70% in the first three months and decreases to only to 41% at the one-year mark. So 40% of the patients at one year still have hypogamma. Now, the second level, and uh, this is more uh, specific and interesting. In patients who receive CD19 CAR-T, the main hypogamma globulinemia problem is an overall low serum IgG level. Uh, so we're looking at the total IgG level. When you look at pathogen-specific antibodies in the CAR-T and the CD19 CAR-T cell population, these are overall comparable to the population-based seroprevalence data. And they actually do not correlate with total IgG. So you're going to have patients with a low total IgG, but who will have preserved pathogen-specific antibody levels. There might be some lower seroprevalence for strep pneumo and haemophilus influenza type B, but that gets inadvertent compensation by using trimethoprim sulfa for pneumocystis prophylaxis. And this is why you're going to see a lot of the ID physicians really prefer trimethoprim sulfa over other regimens for pneumocystis prophylaxis because of that added um, protection it provides against encapsulated organisms. So why do we have this discordance in CD19 CAR-T between total IgG level and pathogen-specific antibodies? This is due to the fact that CD19, as we mentioned, is expressed on pre-B cells all the way through memory B cells, but is not expressed on the long-lived antibody-producing plasma cells, which actually express BCMA. So as such, after CD19 CAR-T, the CD19 negative BCMA positive plasma cells remain. The CD19 positive B cells and plasma cells are eliminated, and this is why you have this discrepancy between total antibody levels and pathogen-specific antibody levels. On the other side, in BCMA CAR-T, in addition to overall hypogamma globulinemia, pathogen-specific IgG levels are significantly lower then after CD19 CAR-T, uh, and hence are significantly lower than the overall population seroprevalence data. This is due to the fact that BCMA is expressed on the late-stage memory B cells and the long-lived plasma cells, and is very important for the survival of those long-lived plasma cells. After BCMA CAR-T, all these plasma cell populations are depleted, this will result in more severe antibody deficiencies uh, and both total and pathogen-specific antibodies. As a side note, because I know Sarah is met PEDS and we do have a, uh, a PEDS ID audience as well, 
And the pediatric population for whom only CD19 CAR T is approved for BALL, these patients have limited pre-established plasma cells to begin with before undergoing CD19 CAR T. And thus, they will only have limited pathogen-specific antibody titers and spectra after CD19 CAR T. So in a sense, they will resemble the BCMA CAR T even though they got a CD19 product. For this reason, the expert recommendation for IVIG replacement tends to be more liberal for BCMA CAR T recipients and for the pediatric CD19 CAR T cell recipients as compared to adults who get CD19. For these two special populations, the recommendation is to maintain IgG levels greater than 400, regardless of whether they had recurrent or severe infections and regardless of the timeline, uh, because the theoretical benefit of a more liberal utilization of IgG replacement is higher. Now, uh, to look at infections after BCMA CAR-T, the first study was published in 2022, again, out of Red Hutch. They looked at 32 adults who were enrolled in phase one trials of BCMA CAR-T. Everyone got lymphodepleting chemotherapy. 10 of the 32 also got a gamma secretase inhibitor on top of lymphodepletion. Everyone had an antimicrobial prophylaxis regimen. Uh, of note, and to illustrate the point we made earlier, 81% uh, of the patients lacked seroprotective levels of measles IgG before CAR-T. After CAR-T, the only patients who retained a seroprotective level had actually had non-IgG myeloma. So additionally, the patients with IgG multiple myeloma had significantly fewer, fewer viral epitope hits compared to non-IgG myeloma, both before and after CAR-T. So there's something about IgG myeloma that puts those patients at a particularly increased risk for infection compared to the other patients with non-IgG multiple myeloma. So even not all myeloma is the same. In comparison, a study of 22 CD19 CAR T cell recipients by the same group showed that only one patient lost their measles seroprotection after CD19 CAR T, and that was a patient who had a prior allo transplant. Uh, so you can see here, this is a good example for this pathogen-specific antibody concept we discussed. In terms of infections for the BCMA group, in the first 28 days, there was about the same proportion of bacterial and viral infections. And beyond that, most of the infections were viral. There was another cohort, this time from UCSF, that had 55 patients treated with BCMA CAR-T and followed for up to one year all of whom got antimicrobial prophylaxis. In this cohort, the highest incidence of infection was actually between day 31 and day 100. There was almost equal distribution between bacterial and viral infections during this time. Beyond day 100, there were more viral infections, uh, but the rate of bacterial infection was still decent. Now, what is more interesting with the UCSF group, they did something uh, quite interesting. They did a direct comparison of their BCMA cohort with another group of 49 patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who got CD19 CAR-T. And this comparison is interesting. It showed a significantly higher rate of bacterial infection with CD19. It was 73% versus 40%. Significantly higher risk of viral infection in the BCMA group, 53% versus 20%. 
Patients with CD19 CAR T tended to have more severe infections, 18% versus 5%. There were more bloodstream infections in the CD19 group, 50% versus 2%. More GI infection, 10% versus none, again in the CD19 group. The risk factors for infection were steroids, post-CAR T hypogammaglobulinemia, as far as I know, this is the only head-to-head -head comparison we have between the two types of CAR-T in terms of uh, infections. Thank you for this review. So back to this patient, two weeks later, while still on steroids, he developed severe hypoxemia with new bilateral hypermetabolic pulmonary ground glass opacities, nodules, and associated pleural effusions. A bronchoscopy with BAL was obtained, and CMV-PCR from the BAL returned at 6,500. The PJP-PCR was positive as well, at less than 84, and his BAL aspergillus antigen was elevated at 3.86. How often do these patients develop CMV infection and disease, and what are the risk factors, and what about other herpes viruses? Great. So as you both know, I really am into CMV. Uh, so I have closely looked into that one. Uh, some of the previous cohorts we described have reported occurrences of CMV infection. When we say CMV infection, we mean CMV viremia. Uh, there have been scattered case reports of CMV and organ disease. I can remember one reporting CMV encephalitis. The challenge with CAR-T patients is that unlike allogeneic transplant, we have not routinely performed CMV-PCR surveillance when the CAR-T program started. So cases of CMV reactivation would not really get diagnosed until they reach the end organ disease stage. Uh, we have shown that this was the case in patients with lymphoma and myeloma in general. Um, uh, and we had a cohort of 84 patients out of MD Anderson that we presented at ID Week in 2021. This was one of my fellowship projects. Uh, those patients had lymphoma or myeloma and developed clinically significant CMV infection. And remember, clinically significant CMV infection is uh, CMV and organ disease or a viremia that requires preemptive therapy. Actually, one-fifth of these patients uh, had CAR-T, and about two-thirds of the patients had CMV and organ disease on initial presentation because we do not do routine monitoring uh, in these patients. All-cause mortality was 55% at day 100, and CMV-related mortality was 11% among patients with end-organ disease. So overall, this is a population that has been classically unrecognized to have a decent burden of CMV infection and CMV disease. So we decided to look into CMV in patients who received CAR-T. This was another one of my fellowship projects at MD Anderson. We presented that in ASH in 2022. Uh, we had 230 patients who received CAR T cell, um, and I believe the overwhelming majority of these were CD19. 10% uh, developed clinically significant CMV infection. Um, those clinically significant CMV infections were identified at the median of 17 days after CAR T, and as expected, there was a high rate of end organ pneumonia. About a third of these 10%. Uh, uh, were diagnosed with CMV pneumonia. Of the patients who were diagnosed with clinically significant CMV infection, 55% passed away within 60 days of the diagnosis. 
patients with clinically significant CMV infection had a higher overall mortality rate at one year post-CAR-T compared to patients who did not have clinically significant CMV infection. And it's not, uh, I think this is probably due to two things. One, direct mortality due to CMV, but then most importantly, the fact that if somebody reactivates CMV, that's a sign of how deeply immunosuppressed they are to begin with. Uh, the risk factors were identified to be low ANC at uh, day 30, grade 2 or higher CRS or ICANS, requiring treatment for CRS or ICANS, and a high cumulative steroid dose during the first 30 days after CAR T cell infusion. There was another study presented in the tandem conference back this February by the Fred Hodge group. They actually enrolled 36 CMV seropositive adult CAR T-cell recipients prospectively, they looked at both CMV and HHV6 reactivation. About 20% of these patients had a CMV reactivation and about 10% had HHV6 reactivation. Uh, of those seven patients with CMV reactivation, only two received preemptive therapy and there were no cases of end-organ disease for either CMV or HHV6. Now, mind you, these patients were enrolled in a prospective study and they were being monitored with weekly CMV and HHV6 PCR. So here, this was the same framework as allogeneic transplants. So you would expect to catch them before they develop end-organ disease, which was the case here. Uh, it looked like these viral reactivations were more frequent in patients with multiple myeloma treated with BCMA CAR-T and patients who had received prior transplant uh, and patients who had more prior lines of therapy, who had high-grade CRS or ICANS, and who had lower lymphocyte counts. So with that, I think more centers are starting to move towards monitoring for CMV in very high-risk patients. Those would be patients with persistent cytopenias, those with high-grade CRS or ICANS, those who require high-dose steroids for treatment of uh, these things, as well as HLH or MAS. And I think we are progressively getting a good understanding of which patients at highest risk so that we could target these patients with monitoring, preemptive therapy, and then ultimately prophylaxis. Uh, we also need a better understanding of how CMV-specific uh, immune reconstitution occurs after CAR T. I will mention a brief word about other herpes viruses. We did look into that for that same cohort from MD Anderson. I think we had a couple of cases of CNS disease with HHV6. Uh, regarding HSV and VZV, nowadays all patients should be on acyclovir or valacyclovir prophylaxis, so it is rare to see such reactivations. In our cohort, we saw three patients, uh, one of whom was not on prophylaxis at the time of infection. Obviously, if someone breaks through acyclovir or valacyclovir, you do have to worry about drug resistance, and the treatment of these cases is very challenging. Uh, again, we saw the same risk factors for herpes virus reactivation, high-grade CRS or ICANS, and a significantly higher cumulative dose of steroids in the first 30 days. And I do want to give you the numbers here. Uh, those patients who had herpes virus reactivation had received a median of 5,700 milligrams of prednisone equivalent over the first 30 days, as compared to about 870 in those who did not get a herpes virus reactivation. Now that we talked about viral and bacterial infections, all that is left is talking about fungal infections. 
What are the risk factors for invasive fungal infections in this population? Great question. And I do not think that the answer to that can be uniform across the entire U.S., and we will discuss that. Uh, there have been multiple reports of invasive fungal infections in this patient population. I will start by talking about the one that people think less about outright as a fungal infection, which is pneumocystis. Uh, and there is very good recognition that these patients are at increased risk for pneumocystis. And I think most, if not all, cohorts that we discussed, including cohorts that enrolled patients during clinical trials, had pneumocystis prophylaxis in place. As such, there have not been many reports of pneumocystis infections in these patients. Uh, there was an extensive review of fungal infections published in 2021, and they were only able to identify three cases. Two of those patients had already completed prophylaxis, and one patient was non-compliant. So pneumocystis prophylaxis is usually, in these patient populations, universal and effective. Moving on to candida, we did discuss that in the first episode. The early period after CAR-T, characterized by neutropenia, mucositis, central venous catheters, ICU admission, is probably the highest risk for candida infections. Most centers have adopted candida prophylaxis during periods of neutropenia. Uh, the same review paper I just mentioned also looked at reports of invasive candida infection. Most of these patients had been on fluconazole, so most of the breakthroughs on fluconazoles were due to candida glabrata, obviously. And most of these breakthroughs also occurred in the first 30 days after CAR T. Now, mold infections is where it gets more complicated. And in that review, most of the mold cases occurred in patients with ALL, few in patients with CLL, as opposed to patients with lymphoma, which I think has more to do with the extent of immunosuppression related to the primary disease before getting into CAR-T and the previous therapies they might have received, including the fact that patients with ALL who received CAR-T in the very early years were more likely to have been those patients who had, who had relapsed their disease after an allogeneic transplant, which I think would be the main driver for risk of invasive mold infections. In the post-CAR-T period, I think there are two important risk factors for invasive mold. The first one is prolonged neutropenia, which is the same immunological problem we see in patients with relapsed refractory AML, uh, which puts them at risk for invasive molds. And this review paper nicely calls it the AML-like phenotype. Uh, long courses of steroids and other immunosuppressants for CRS, but particularly for ICANs, is the second risk factor. And that's the same immunological problem we see in allogeneic transplant recipients who develop GVHD and require long courses of steroids. And that review paper actually calls it a GVHD-like phenotype. So you have an AML-like phenotype and a GVHD-like phenotype. These two groups of patients are candidates for mold prophylaxis. The three azoles we currently have available are posaconazole, voriconazole, and isafuconazole. Posaconazole is the one with is the only one with clinical trial data supporting its use as primary prophylaxis in allotransplants with GVHD. And this was an NEJM paper uh, that I'll send you as well. So naturally, that would be the preferred agent. 
Vori and ISA are probably acceptable as well. Keep in mind that voriconazole does not have good activity against agents of mucormycosis. Now, this is where it gets complicated or rather nuanced uh, based on your geographical location. So there was a recent study published uh, the past summer of 280 patients receiving CD19 CAR T-cell for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at Dana-Farber in Boston. Sarah, you might be familiar with that place. Um, and these patients did not receive any routine yeast or mold prophylaxis. And this cohort had extremely low rate of invasive fungal infections, despite not receiving any prophylaxis. Out of the 280 patients, only eight patients, or 3%, developed invasive fungal disease. They had three cases of pneumocystis, three invasive molds, and two invasive yeast infections, despite no prophylaxis, and despite a very decent rate of CRS, 85% of the patients had CRS, 55% of the patients had ICANs, and 41% of the patients had prolonged neutropenia after day 30. So I think it really depends on where you practice and what your institutional rates of inv invasive fungal infections are. Uh, both Rita and I practice in the South, and we encounter invasive mold infections in patients with hematological malignancies on a daily basis. Uh, so I think we cannot afford but to give mold active prophylaxis for our high-risk patients. In different geographical locations with different climates, different soil composition, different humidity, I think the decision to administer mold active prophylaxis might be more nuanced. And here you have to consider the risks associated with these azoles, adverse events, drug interactions, etc. Thanks so much to Rita and Joseph for this two-part series. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.